across the board in the interventional trials, they're usually giving isolates of, you know, milk protein or beef protein to people. I don't know if they've ever done a study with the steaks, but they do not see animal protein being inflammatory. Right. There's no evidence, there's no interventional evidence that animal protein is inflammatory toward the immune system, that animal protein causes DNA damage. There's a great study that looked at all sorts of different markers. They look at markers of gut inflammation, they look at markers of GI health, they look at markers of DNA damage, they look at markers of immunologic signaling. They don't see any signal in an interventional sense when they give people meat protein versus plant protein. Dr. Paul Saladino, really great to have you on the program. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. So I first got onto your program and your podcast and a lot of your YouTube videos from my friend Brian, who's an investor at Andreessen Horowitz, one of our investors at HVMN. And he's been one of my favorite biohacking, human performance thought partners, exploring diet, different exercises, different devices and gadgets. And as our regular listeners know, we have a lot of the carnivore thought leaders on the program. We've had Sean Baker and Michaela Peterson and Travis Data and that crowd. And I've found that one, there's more and more evidence building behind the carnivore diet. And two, I thought that your articulation, your data, your way to presenting that that corpus is very, very compelling and succinct and compelling. So really fun to have you on the program and talk about all of that. Thanks, man. It's been a fun journey. It's been a really, really cool rabbit hole to go down for sure. So maybe as a quick brief, it would be helpful to get a sense of how long you've been on the carnivore diet and your journey from, I presume, more of a standard American diet or standard Western diet. And, and how quickly did you go from a standard diet to this nose to tail carnivore? that you've really been a proud exponent of? I've been on a nose-to-tail carnivore diet, and we can define that later on in the podcast, for a year solidly right now. So zero plant products for a solid year at this point. Prior to that, I had espoused a sort of organic paleo diet for quite a long time. So 12 years, I was organic paleo, and I thought that was a really good incarnation of diet, and I still think that's a very good incarnation of a dietary plan. But one of the things for me was that I had eczema, and it was on my elbows and on my knees, and at certain times in medical school, it got worse, and it caused impetigo, which is a super infection of the skin, and I got septic at one point, and Mm. it was just continually clear to me based on my recurrent flares of eczema over that decade on an organic paleo diet, that something was still wrong and my immune system was still being triggered in some way. And so I kept trying to refine it and I kept trying to take things out, kept trying to think about, is it histamine? Is it oxalates? Is it this? Is it that? Is it lectins? And so I had various experiments where I would do low lectin paleo and then low histamine paleo and then low oxalate paleo. And then I did them all at the same time. And the eczema still kind of continued. Perhaps it would get better and wax and wane at times, but I would still have it from time to time. And then I thought, is it dairy? At that time, I wasn't really hip to the idea of A1 versus A2, but I tried no dairy. I incorporated dairy back. And so anyway, the iteration continued around the idea of what what is going on with my body? Because I think that unlike 
mainstream Western medicine, when I see something like that, I think there's something out of balance here. My immune system is still triggered and I need to correct it because it's going to have other effects elsewhere in my body. So that was eventually how sort of the light bulb went on and the carnivore diet became my focus. I heard Jordan Peterson on Joe Rogan talking about his daughter, Michaela, her autoimmune issues, his autoimmune issues, and their improvements from this meat diet. And my first thought was, that is crazy. Yep. I, think, I think it's most people's thought because we come up against so much conditioning when we're talking about these types of diets and so much narrative connected with the idea that we've always been told that plants are so good for us. But as I thought about it more and more, I thought, okay, this actually makes some sense. Perhaps there is something triggering autoimmunity in myself with this diet. And I kind of dove into it. And as I got deeper and deeper into it and quickly saw that it was creating really good results for me and started using it in some of my clients and then started reading more about the anecdotes and the case studies that were happening with the carnivore diet, I thought, well, this is the beginning of something really big. This is just the tip of the iceberg. But there are so many questions because when you tell people or you suggest that eating animals nose to tail is an ideal diet or one of the optimal diets or perhaps the optimal diet for humans, you run up against so many long-held notions. This is canon in nutrition. I mean, over the next few years, I just can't wait to see what happens in nutrition. And, you know, I think that as the carnivore diet gains momentum and gains scientific reputation and backing, we certainly may have to rewrite the nutrition textbooks. It's kind of a crazy potential. It's going to be tectonic. Not to make this overly dramatic, but I think there's something there. I remember a year ago, I think when more and more people were thinking about the carnivore diet, it was kind of like visceral gut punch to most people. They're like, what are you? You're insane. But I think within relative in the, in the last month or two or just in recent conversations, I think people are starting to be more and more open with it. So perhaps I, I think it would be a good way to start the conversation around being good scientists and assuming or not assuming the null hypothesis. Let's assume that the traditional nutritional guidelines are correct and go down the list of some of the major critiques of the carnivore diet. And one piece of literature or a corpus of literature is around the epidemiological data around how red meat is associated with elevated cardiovascular disease risk and increased mortality. So how do we address that? How do we debunk that broad epidemiological point? We see those epidemiology studies almost on a daily basis now. It's interesting. It used to kind of piss me off and now it just makes me excited because I think, okay, the more fuel for the fire, you know, it's it's going to be a big bonfire when this goes up because there's lots and lots of sort of detractors and lots and lots of people who are arguing against it. And I think when people realize that there's merit here, it's going to be a really big, warm, bright fire that's going to be historically, I think, quite memorable. The epidemiologic data is intriguing. And I love that you bring this up to start because I think it's so important to keep examining this for people who are listening. Most of your listeners will be familiar with the details of these studies and will understand that these are epidemiology rather than interventional studies. But oftentimes in the mainstream media, there's a great disservice here because the mainstream media just says one half a serving of red meat per week decreases your life expectancy by, you know, this much. And these sensational headlines, there's no discussion of how they're arriving at that postulate or what's going on there. And it's really misleading to the public, so much so that I would 
argue it's pretty much propaganda at this point, and it's quite disturbing. But as your listeners will most likely know, these are not interventional studies. This is not a study where they gave people half a serving of meat and followed them for 50 years. It's nothing like that. In fact, it's nothing even close to that. These are studies that are based on surveys and they're food recall, and they can be prospective or retrospective, meaning the investigators ask people what they eat, and then they follow them in five to 10 years. Most of the studies are done on a retrospective basis, which means they look back at mortality and people's lives and the quality of their life, and usually they're just looking at mortality ratios or death rates, and they'll say, well, what did you eat, or what sort of things do you include in your diet? And then so they're all based on memory, number one, of what we eat, and they're trying to distinguish whether it's like, oh, you're eating more eggs, therefore you're having more atherosclerotic coronary vascular disease. That was a big one that came out a few years ago. Or you're eating more bacon, and then you have more of these diseases. So their first problem is that these are recall studies, which we know are inherently flawed. People don't have a great recall to the amount or the types of foods they've eaten. Do you even remember what you ate for breakfast or like what you had for lunch yesterday? I mean, people don't really even know. Or two weeks ago. Right. And these people, these are asking in the last 10 years. Exactly. And then if they're doing a prospective study, they'll ask someone, how are you eating now? And then they'll follow them five to 10 years later or two or three years later. And how they might have been eating then might not reflect how they're eating now. So the, the whole basis of these studies is flawed. Oftentimes we'll say, oh, it's the best we've got, but it's not really that good to begin with. There's been much discussion around sort of the basic garbage nature of epidemiology and the fact that it's really not that valuable. I think the problem with epidemiology is that it was designed to generate hypotheses. And then those hypotheses were supposed to be tested with interventional studies. But now within Western medicine, we're using these hypotheses generating studies as canon. Right. And that's a huge mistake. And so the other thing that happens with these studies, and there is a large body of epidemiologic literature to associate increased consumption of red meat or animal products with increased cardiovascular disease and shorter lifespan. That is not able to be argued. However, that is primarily within Western cultures, right? And so the idea here is that this is probably or potentially reflecting healthy user bias. When we're looking at epidemiology, we cannot infer causality. This is correlation is not equal to causation. A correlation between an increased consumption of red meat and a shorter lifespan does not mean that red meat causes a shorter lifespan. In many of these studies, we also do not know in which direction the arrow of causality may go. This is something we could talk about with regard to the epidemiologic studies with TMAO or trimethylamine oxide, which is something that people love to criticize the carnivore diet about. Yep. I was going to bring that as point two, but I'm glad we're touching upon that. So the idea of correlation not being causation is something that probably will not be foreign to your listeners. But yeah, you can associate all kinds of things that are yeah. clearly not related. There's a great association between the amount of cheese people eat and the number of people that die getting tangled in their bed sheet. You know, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a great correlation between Nicolas Cage movies per year and the number of deaths by homicide. So there are all sorts of correlations out there that may not be causative. Do we think Nicolas Cage is causing violent homicide? Probably not. Is cheese causing death in the sheets of your bed? Well, probably not unless you're eating cheese in your bed, but you know, it's, it's unusual. And this is the problem with epidemiology is it requires so much 
sort of intellectual archaeology and so much digging to really say, what are we looking at here and what do these statistics actually show us? And we can get some clues by looking across cultures, because if we look at epidemiology surrounding meat and longevity or meat and cardiovascular outcomes or meat and cancer in Eastern cultures, specifically in Asia, we see a very different picture than we do in the West. In fact, the people that eat the most meat in Asia live the longest. They have the lowest rates of cardiovascular disease if we're looking at populations of men, and then they have the lowest rates of cancer if we're looking at populations of women. And so how does that jive, right? How could red meat be toxic in the West and then it's actually a health food in the East? We can make arguments about the quality of the meat in different places, but presumably it's essentially the same. It's not that much different that it would in one place kill you swiftly and in the other place actually be helpful for humans. The more likely explanation is this is all around narrative. This is the James Dean concept that we've been told in the Western United States or the Western world that over the last 70 years that if you eat red meat, you're doing a rebellious thing. You are doing a bad thing for yourself. So who eats red meat? People who have very dangerous behaviors or more rebellious behaviors. These are the James Dean types, the people that smoke, they yep. drink. They exercise less, they have often a lower socioeconomic status, and they're more likely to engage in poor health behaviors or not engage in healthy behaviors, getting out in the sun, exercising, things like this. So there's a really interesting study called the UK Shoppers Study, which illustrates this very clearly. And in this study, I'll back up for one moment. If we look across populations of the westernized world, people will often say vegetarians have the longest life expectancy or vegetarians have lower all-cause mortality. And that may be true relative to the general population. But what was so cool about the UK shoppers study is they looked at two studies, an Oxford vegetarian study and another study of healthy users. And what they found was that the death rate ratio, meaning sort of the all-cause mortality, the rate at which people were dying between vegetarians and people who had healthy behaviors was the same people who are non-vegetarians, right? So we're right. talking about vegetarians versus omnivores with healthy behaviors, same death rates. But vegetarians versus general population, general population dies sooner. That's clear. Right. But this study suggests, and again, this is an epidemiology study, but this study brings up the idea, maybe it's not what we're eating or not eating in these studies that's showing us these data points. Maybe it's actually the healthy behaviors that are helping the vegetarians be longer lived and the people who are eating meat be shorter lived, right? They're not doing the healthy behavior. Right. So this is where the epidemi epidemiology gets so murky. I mean, it's an interpretation problem. I mean, you're essentially, are you detecting the signal of healthy user behavior or are you detecting the signal of vegetarianism? Exactly. And I think it's also interesting, especially in the culture of context, in the Western diet, when you're eating meat, it's oftentimes you're having a beer it's with burgers, you're eating a lot of fries, you got the Coca-Cola with you. So again, are you detecting the signal of meat or are you detecting the signal of alcohol, sugar, and that is not a question that epidemiologists can detect. And I think you've hit it exactly on the dot. It's a statistics 101. Correlation does not equal causation. I think that for better or for worse, there's not a lot of <laughs> understanding of that basic core concept there. And you said it well, epidemiology cannot answer this question. So if I were king, I would outlaw the media sharing studies that can't tell us the thing that they're trying to study. Yeah. These are hypothesis generating studies. Yeah. The other side of this coin or the further down this rabbit hole 
is the interesting notion that there have been a few actual interventional studies with meat or with animal proteins. And these, I think, are so seldom done that they should be highlighted. But the results are quite striking. I mean, there have been comparisons of animal protein and plant protein given to various populations of humans. And this is actually an interventional study, right? right a randomized controlled trial. Yes, it's a randomized controlled trial. It can't be blinded all the time, but sometimes right. they're blinded. And generally, in the interventional trials, or I should say across the board in the interventional trials, they're usually giving isolates of you know, milk protein or beef protein to people. I don't know if they've ever done a study with a steaks, but they do not see animal protein being inflammatory. Right. There's no evidence, there's no interventional evidence that animal protein is inflammatory toward the immune system, that animal protein causes DNA damage. There's a great study that looked at all sorts of different markers. They look at markers of gut inflammation, they look at markers of GI health, they look at markers of DNA damage, they look at markers of immunologic signaling. They don't see any signal in an interventional sense when they give people meat protein versus plant protein. And the flip side is also true, and we can discuss this later, they don't see a lot of inflammatory signals for plant protein, but I will mention that in that study, the calprotectin was higher in the plant group. And the calprotectin is an inflammatory marker that signals inflammation in the gut. So that really right. raised my eyebrows. I thought, that's interesting. I think it almost reached statistical significance. I'd have to go back and look at the study, but the calprotectin was higher in the plant group. But across all the other measures, the meat group did not show any change in inflammation relative to the plant group. So where is the actual interventional data that meat is bad for us? It doesn't exist. Right. It just doesn't exist in the scientific literature, but we're always told about epidemiology. Well, you're right that I haven't seen any data on the inflammatory markers, but there is some study on an uh, interventional basis showing that there's an increase in LDL with meat versus plant-based protein. So I think that unlocks another whole can of worms, John. Is elevated LDL cholesterol a problem in of itself, or does that capture the full health of someone's metabolism? So I think one, let's address that. But two, I think some of the interventional studies are quite positive. I think one of the things that I thought was interesting was that red meat consumption increased telomere length. Yes. Right. And I think that's like not even is this poorer or comparable to plant-based protein. There was an interesting data point suggesting this could be superior to plant-based proteins. But I think it is worth addressing the LDL question because I think, again, with the whole dogma, I think there's an open discussion and we've had conversations with folks like Dave Feldman and Ivory Cummins around this whole LDL cholesterol question. Is this of concern? Curious to get your perspective, especially from a carnivore lens on the LDL cholesterol question. So the red meat and telomeres is quite interesting because red meat, I think, was the only thing that lengthened telomeres that we know of. If you look at that study, they say the only thing that did this was red meat. We're not aware of anything else that can do that. So perhaps there's other things out there, but I've never seen anything else have that result. It's quite a unique finding for telomeres. And the reproducibility and the accuracy of the telomeres measuring is a little sketchy from time to time. But I think that the take-home message there is that red meat probably is a unique food in that sense. Have you ever seen those cans? I think they use them in the circus. They have like this compressed snake and you open the can and the snake just goes boom and explodes out. Sure. That's yeah. what you just did with LDL. You just like open the snake can, we're just like <laughs> boom, Yeah. huge can of worms. But we can dig into it. I've talked about this at length on my podcast at Well, which is Fundamental Health. I had Dave Feldman on there yep. and Nadir Ali. So, 
yes, there is evidence that red meat, specifically saturated fat, will raise LDL. There's also evidence that ketogenic diets can raise LDL, and I don't think we fully understand all of the nuance there, but I've heard Dom D'Agostino talk about dairy fat raising LDL more than other fats, and I have a relatively high LDL. I've seen a high LDL in quite a few carnivores who don't eat any dairy. So I think that's pretty clear that a ketogenic diet for mechanisms that we can discuss and saturated fat in general will raise LDL. And then people run, they run around screaming and they're just like, oh my God, this is such a big deal. And I think, again, this is a little bit of a disservice to the message here because we haven't fully unpacked it. That that assumes or that is predicated on the fact that LDL is a bad molecule or that LDL cholesterol is actually going to be an issue when it's higher. And I would say that that discussion hinges on the question of whether LDL is directly toxic to the endothelium or not. Within mainstream lipidology, that would be, you know, people like Tom Dayspring, Peter Atia. These are people who are well steeped in the lipid literature and would espouse the mainstream perspective. They would say that the best theory is called response to retention. And the response to retention model posits that when you have more LDL, there will be a higher propensity just because of a numbers game for the LDL to get retained in the subendothelial space. And that would suggest that LDL is directly toxic to the endothelium or that LDL is somehow triggering its own retention. And I think that that is where I disagree with this hypothesis. I do think that retention of LDL is the key event in the initiation of atherosclerosis. And what I'm talking about now is the retention of the LDL particle, which is a lipoprotein particle that circulates in our bloodstream, in the subendothelial space onto a proteoglycan layer. Ivor has done a great job talking about this sort of proteoglycan layer in the subendothelium and how LDL getting in there isn't the problem because we know that happens all the time. The LDL moves in and out of that space. It's when it gets stuck. It's like if you have a ball with Velcro on it and you throw it against the wall and it doesn't stick because there's no Velcro on the wall, it's not a big deal. But if there's Velcro on the wall, it sticks. And so from the literature that I have seen, and I plan to have Spencer Nadolsky on my podcast, he's kind of one of these mainstream lipid guys, and have a little discussion with him, perhaps a friendly debate about this. But from what I've seen, there's a real divergence of phenotypes here. And I think this is, again, where the issue becomes confused. I don't think there is robust enough evidence to implicate LDL as directly toxic to the endothelium. I think that instead what we see is that states of metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance, this would be metabolic dyslipidemia, are really what is causing this subendothelial proteoglycan layer to become more sticky. And we know that insulin resistance can increase the amount of APOC3 on the LDL particle. That also makes the LDL stickier. So I think there's a large amount of evidence now to suggest that, number one, insulin resistance creates a stickier subendothelial space. And then number two, that LDL is probably not directly toxic to the endothelium. Let's just examine the second thing in a little more detail. The idea that a molecule that we have evolved with for millions of years would be toxic to our bodies doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, just intuitively. LDL has all of these valuable functions in the human body. LDL is an immunologic mediator. We know that it affects quorum sensum by, by bacteria. 
when bacteria invade our body, they put all these molecules to communicate to other bacteria saying, hey, it's okay, come in and invade, and LDL mops those up. LDL can also be involved directly in the immunologic response. LDL carries cholesterol to the testes and the ovaries. These are tissues that potentially don't make their own cholesterol, and so it's invaluable that that cholesterol backbone gets delivered so we can make sex hormones and be healthy individuals. LDL also carries molecules that are involved in energy production, among other roles. So LDL is a crucial, crucial player in the human body. Just at a basic level, why would such a molecule be bad for us? Why would it hurt us? These arguments, they don't really make sense to me. And some of the most compelling examinations are around the actual numbers of these things. When you look at an LDL number on a general cholesterol panel, it's in milligrams per deciliter. And there are these more sophisticated LDL panels now, which can get those numbers in nanomole per liter, which is an actual particle count. And when you have nanomole per liter, you can do the math with Avogadro's number and actually calculate the number of LDL particles in your body or my body. Well, people will probably be shocked to learn that even at an LDL of 100 milligrams per deciliter, generally speaking, assuming an average particle size, you have 1 times 10 to the 18th particles of LDL in your body. That is 18 zeros. That is a very, very large number. When you have an LDL of 300 milligrams per deciliter, you have three times 10 to the 18th particles of LDL in your body. Now, granted, that's three times the other number, but one times 10 to the 18th particles of LDL is still a huge number. How could something at one times 10 to the 18th not be toxic to our endothelium, and then at three times 10 to the 18th be suddenly toxic to our endothelium. At which point does this happen? And the lipidologists might argue, well, it's a gradual progression. Well, that's kind of baloney in my opinion too, because there are trials like the Fourier trial, which is a combination of statins and PCSK9 inhibitors that got the LDL down to 30 milligrams per deciliter, which is probably not even high enough for people to make sex hormones or let alone lead a healthy life. And they still had a very large number of cardiac events when the LDL is at that number. So in my opinion, it's pretty clear that it's not the number of LDLs. No matter how much LDL you have on your lipid panel, you have a really boatload of LDL particles in your body. And I would argue, though I haven't done the quantum physics or I haven't done the actual numbers in physics, I'd love for somebody to do this with me. I believe that at one time since the 18th, the Brownian motion of the LDL particles in and out of the endothelium is probably saturated. I don't think there's any more LDL particles, and you could do a tracer study to prove mm. this, I don't think there are any more LDL particles getting into the subendothelial space at three times 10 to the 18th relative to one times 10 to the 18th. So if that's the case, the whole argument kind of falls apart because I would argue at one times 10 to the 18th or even three times 10 to the 17th, which would be an LDL of 30 milligrams per deciliter, that system of LDL or that flux of LDL into the subendothelial space is probably saturated. That's not the key issue here. It's whether or not the LDL gets stuck because of all those numbers, you still have a colossal amount of LDL moving into the subendothelial space. The other thing that people forget is that our HDL exists in our body at two orders of magnitude higher than the LDL. So if you look on an NMR profile, the HDL is measured in micromole per liter, not Mm. nanomole per liter. The HDL is around 10 to the 20th 
But HDL is not an atherogenic particle. HDL carries 30% of the cholesterol in our bodies, but it's not an atherogenic particle. How do the cholesterol hypotheses people explain this? Because HDL is also moving in and out of our subendothelial space, yet it's not an atherogenic particle. So it's just like there is a huge amount of HDL particles, there's a huge amount of LDL particles, and we know that insulin resistance makes the LDL stickier. And then if you look at data like Dave's data and much other data, you can kind of stratify and see that when you correct, when you look at people who are insulin sensitive versus insulin resistant, there's a clear divergence in how that LDL affects their cardiac risk. One of my favorite slides from Evor is he did a reanalysis of the Framingham data and he subgrouped those people into high HDL and low HDL. And that HDL metric is probably a proxy for insulin sensitivity. When people become insulin resistant, their HDL generally goes down. So the, the low HDL group is a proxy for insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance, and a higher HDL group is probably more insulin sensitive. And what did he find? He found that as you go up an LDL number, according to the Framingham data, if your HDL is high, there is no increase in cardiac risk. But as you go up an LDL number with a low HDL, there is an increase in cardiac risk. And that makes sense, right? In an insulin-resistant state, if your LDL is sticky and your subendothelial space is sticky, then yeah, if you put more LDL around, it's probably going to be a problem. But without insulin resistance, without a sticky subendothelium, I don't think there's really any compelling evidence to suggest that we should be worried about higher levels of LDL. Absolutely. And most people on these ketogenic and carnivore diets pretty darn insulin sensitive. There's not a whole lot of insulin resistance in this community. Yeah. And I think it reminds me of our initial conversation around epidemiology and correlation is not equal to causation. And I think a lot of the inference around Framingham is that these are epidemiological studies and retrospectively trying to correlate these things. And again, I think the, the potential flaw of logic of standard practice is that are the LDLs causing this? And I think that's the question that is being unpacked now. And I think one of the best analogies I've ever heard is that ambulances are correlated with people dying at, at an accident scene. Are the ambulances killing people or are they just a, a part of that response process? I think exactly. that's an interesting way to think about LDL. Is that the ambulance or is that the person that ran you over? And I think that question is hopefully will be resolved and people will have a better understanding of how to you know consume diet. I think that the other thing with LDL, not to belabor this point, is that most of the LDL supporters or most of the people that espouse a conventional view of LDL as atherogenic or toxic would often point to GWAS. They'll point to genome-wide association studies. Mm -hmm. And if you exclude genome-wide association studies, you see a whole different picture, right? So genome-wide association studies are surveys of people who have genetic polymorphisms, which cause them to have a high LDL. Well, this isn't the same thing, right? A high LDL, uh, perhaps this is the fundamental flaw that most of these people are making in their thinking. For that assumption to be valid for the rest of us, that has to be the same condition as a high LDL on a ketogenic or a carnivore diet, which is not the case. You have a genetic mutation, a genetic polymorphism in CETP or PCSK9 or one of these other LDL receptor. These are the familial hypercholesterolemia people in some sense, but there are genetic polymorphisms which cause people to have a high LDL. And they'll say, oh, look, there's a linear progression in the amount of coronary events in the LDL 
in the GWAS and the people that have these polymorphisms. And I say, that is not representative of the generalized population. Right. Those are people who have broken cholesterol metabolism because they have a polymorphism. We would never do that anywhere else in medicine. We'd never say, hey, you know, this genetic mutation, this genetic disease gives you this condition. Therefore, we're going to just expand that and apply that to everyone else in the population as a blanket statement. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so it's a little spurious. Yeah. It is a little spurious. So people need to be very careful. And again, this is where I think the onus is on the investigators and people are not doing a very good job of communicating what is GWAS? What is Mendelian randomization? The other studies are the Mendelian randomizations. Yeah. And these are all genetic people. These are people with genetic polymorphisms that affect LDL metabolism. Dave has talked a lot about this. Yeah. Dave has issued a challenge. It is impossible to find a study in people who do not have a genetic polymorphism that causes their LDL to be high that shows that a high LDL in the setting of low triglycerides and high HDL have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. That study does not exist. So before forgetting about TMAO, let's address that point really quickly around TMAO. It's associated with cardiovascular risk. People say that red meat has a lot of TMAO, but it's also interesting to notice that fish and, and different other animal products and things considered classically heart healthy also have high TMAO. So I recently did a podcast with Stephen Gundry and he's been a proponent and said, oh, TMAO is a bad thing for a while. And I wish we'd gotten more time on that podcast to yeah. really duke it out. But TMAO is trimethylamine oxide and it comes from a molecule called trimethylamine. And red meat doesn't have TMAO or TMA in it. It has precursors for TMAO, specifically choline and carnitine. But you're absolutely right. Fish do have approximately 40 times more TMAO in a preformed state than what might be made out of an equivalent amount of choline and carnitine found in an, uh, the same amount of meat as fish. So a six ounce piece of fish is going to have 40 times more TMAO approximately. I'm just kind of, I think that's about the right number. A six ounce piece of fish is going to have 40 times more TMAO than the amount of TMAO that you would make from the choline and carnitine in six ounces of meat. And again, this goes back to the thing we were talking about in the beginning. This is epidemiology. I was trying to unravel the TMAO story, and I thought, where are the mechanistic studies? Where are the interventional studies? They don't exist. This is all epidemiology. And this is another fascinating rabbit hole to go down, and it's, it really recapitulates everything we've been talking about in so many ways. What you see here is people with higher TMAO levels do tend to have higher rates of cardiovascular disease. And as you suggested, Correlation is not causation. And as I mentioned, we do not know in which direction the arrow of causality may go. I would say this is pretty much clear now. And anyone who knows the TMA liter TMAO literature would have a hard time debating what I'm about to say. This is not conjecture. What we've seen now with TMAO is that the formation of TMAO in the liver is under the control of an enzyme called FMO3. I think it's flavine, flavine monooxygenase 3. That enzyme is under the control of insulin. Mm. And so people who are insulin resistant have higher levels of insulin and make more FMO3. So it would follow that those who are insulin resistant would have a higher level of TMAO. Now, is getting a high level of TMAO from insulin resistance the same as getting a high level of TMAO from choline and carnitine? Not in this ball, no way, no way. This is the same thing as the LDL story. Is getting a high level of LDL related to insulin resistance the same thing as getting a high level of LDL related to uh, a ketogenic or carnivore diet? Nope. 
not the same <laughs> phenotype at all. These are divergent phenotypes. So there was a great study that came out recently, and I think it was a Mendelian randomization, and it was statistics, it was epidemiology, but what they were able to show in that study was that elevated TMAO was likely being caused by diabetes and caused by kidney disease, suggesting what we would call reverse causality. So that in the studies that associate high TMAO with cardiovascular disease, it's not that TMAO causes cardiovascular disease, it's that insulin resistance associated with cardiovascular disease probably causes a high TMAO. And this is the problem with epidemiology, and this is why everyone is so off the mark with this. As you suggested, we had a sense this was a, a fishy story, you know, bad pun, for a while, because fish has not been associated with cardiovascular disease historically in epidemiology studies. And yet, fish has 40 times more preformed TMAO. And the other piece of the equation is that we know that these compounds, choline and carnitine, are crucial for normal healthy metabolism. Choline is a precursor for phospholipids, membranes, choline supplementation has been shown to improve outcomes in NAFLD, which is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Choline has been associated with improved outcomes in terms of psychiatric things because it's also a precursor for acetylcholine. Yep. Carnitine is only found in meat and is clearly beneficial for us in terms of antioxidant response, and it's been associated with improved response to other psychiatric things as well. So we need these things in our bodies to limit choline and carnitine out of fear for TMAO is to move the health of the population in a clearly negative direction. We will have worsening of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That would be a travesty. These are not the things which cause heart disease. I think we're just starting to address all the bricks that people will commonly throw at the carnivore diet. I think the last brick that people might throw is the methionine content. Again, very tight. It's a core component of red meat or animal proteins right. and methionine being associated with a higher mortality risk. Right. And I think this probably goes into your nose to tail discussion where glycine supplementation or glycine content, which is found in collagen, basically reduces that issue where glycine supplementation basically resolves any of the methionine concerns. Any additional quick color there? Those are concerns that I believe were originally raised in the 1950s and 1960s right. based on rat studies. And that's exactly the case, that when they gave rats a high methionine diet and they limited glycine, they saw lifespan restriction. They saw they died earlier. And then when they took the methionine out, they said, oh, they live longer. And then people stop, you know, and they think, ah, see, rats live longer when you limit their methionine. Therefore, we should never eat meat yeah. and we should all be skinny and never have, you know, any anabolic processes. It doesn't make any sense, right? We, we would never have gotten to this point in evolution by avoiding methionine. And then the third experiment is the one that people often forget about, but is the most important experiment, which is where they added glycine in to the diets and they saw lifespan extension because it was more about the methionine-glycine ratio than the actual burden of methionine. And you're right, as we know, it's fairly easy to obtain methionine in a nose-to-tail carnivore diet by looking for connective tissue. Yep. And that's found in bones, it's found in skeletal tendons, it's found in collagen, collagenous tissues, chewy bits. As westernized Americans, we don't really want to eat these, but we can get collagen supplementation, et cetera, et cetera. Or just pure glycine as an amino acid is probably beneficial in most contexts. Yeah. I think all the common concerns that folks might have with the carnivore, I think we've addressed a lot of that. And I would say that, okay, we have established that this is not clearly, obviously stupid, but people might say, okay, vegetables are great because there's polyphenols, there's fibers, 
And if you're eating 100% carnivore, 100% animal-based, you're not getting the fiber, you're not getting these polyphenols, things like resveratrol, sulforaphane, these popular antioxidant polyphenols that are hypothesized to contribute to longevity. What are your responses or thoughts in terms of both the fiber story and the polyphenol story? Another big, big can of worms. I'll try and unpack it in a clear and concise manner. Let's address fiber first. In the fiber story, there are a number of sort of subheadings which we can address quickly. The evidence for fiber as preventative for colon cancer does not exist, and that is not a debatable statement. If you look at the studies from the New England Journal of Medicine from 99 and 2000, there is no evidence in the medical literature at this point in time that fiber supplementation, either from fruits and vegetables or wheat bran fiber supplements, changes your rate of recurrence of colonic adenoma or pre-cancerous lesions. So that idea that, that we need fiber to prevent colon cancer is a fallacy. And in fact, there were some studies that showed an increased rate of tubular adenoma recurrence in people who were given essentially psyllium husks, which are metamucil. So the fiber and colon cancer doesn't exist. And then there's fiber and constipation. And that's another fairy tale, unfortunately. If you look at the literature there, there's a really great interventional study that's often quoted in which the complete removal of fiber resulted in total resolution of idiopathic constipation. So these are people, I think each group was about 20 to 40 people who were divided into no fiber, some fiber, or regular amount of fiber. And all the people in these groups had idiopathic constipation, which means doctors didn't know what was causing their constipation. And in the zero fiber group, every single person in the group had resolution of their constipation. So the idea that we need fiber to fix constipation would be completely contrary to the results of that study. In fact, the removal of fiber resulted in resolution of constipation. Even furthermore, with regarding constipation, if you look at the literature, it's pretty clear Fiber does not change the quality of stool, the pain with passing stool, or the need to use laxatives, or the amount of bleeding that people get with stool when they have constipation. Fiber will increase the stool bulk and perhaps might increase the number of stools, but constipation is much more than that. Constipation is hard stool, which is difficult to pass requiring the use of laxatives, often resulting in hemorrhoids or fissures from bleeding. And so qualitatively, fiber does not relieve the symptoms of constipation. And if you ask people with constipation, I hear this all the time, they say, oh, it's even worse when I ate fiber because then my poop just gets even bigger and it hurts more to pass <laughs> it, right? It's just more yeah. painful and it causes more problems when people get bigger stools. So fiber doesn't really help constipation. And there's diverticulosis, which people have probably heard me talk about a lot. There's no evidence that fiber improves diverticulosis. That is a misconstrued story from a surgeon named Burkett in the 1960s. But if you look at the data, Actually, in terms of case series, which are based on food frequency recall questionnaires with colonoscopy, the people that ate the smallest amount of fiber had the lowest amount of diverticulosis. In interventional studies and further colonoscopy studies, there's never been shown to be a correlation between diverticulosis incidence and the amount of fiber that people eat. So it's pretty clear fiber doesn't prevent diverticulosis, which is the outpouching of the colonic mucosa through the muscular layers. It's a small sort of blind pouch which can get infected and form diverticulitis. Fiber doesn't prevent that. 
Fiber doesn't prevent cancer. Fiber doesn't prevent or treat constipation. And perhaps the last piece of the fiber equation is the microbiome. Mm -hmm. And this is the murkiest discussion. And my good friend Tommy Wood has enlightened me regarding the word tassiography, which is reading tea leaves. So what I would say about the microbiome is at this point in time, it's mostly tassiography. And many of the claims regarding fiber in the microbiome, I would say, are overblown and they are extrapolations. I don't think that there's evidence that we really know what a healthy microbiome is and which organisms we should have in there. There are right. thousands and thousands, and there are commensals, and there are fungi, and there are viruses, and there are protozoa, and there are worms in some people, and maybe they're good, and maybe they're bad. And so the idea that we absolutely need plant fiber to create a healthy microbiome is something I've heard repeated on many podcasts, and I always kind of bristle and think, how do you know that? Because clinically, we see the opposite. Anecdotally, we see the opposite. There are plenty of anecdotes, plenty of what will hopefully soon be case reports or case studies of people with bad GI issues, meaning either inflammatory bowel disease, that would be Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, also irritable bowel syndrome, which is probably synonymous with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Many of these people have complete resolution or significant improvement in their symptoms when they eliminate fiber from their diet. So, if it were true that plant fiber were necessary or requisite for an ideal healthy microbiome, why would we be seeing those things clinically? Because those are conditions that people would then link to a, a microbiota issue, right? People are trying to treat Crohn's and ulcerative colitis with probiotics. They're trying to treat that with fecal microbiota transplant. They're trying to modify the gut flora to treat those diseases. And if it were true that the lack of plant fiber would really cause the colonic microflora to become totally dysbiotic, or even the small intestinal microflora to become totally dysbiotic, we would be seeing something very, very differently clinically. The other issue, which I'll just touch on briefly, is the colonic mucus. And I am patiently waiting for Rhonda Patrick to debate me on this. And I would respect her work. And I disagree with her with this extremely. She's in San Diego. So yeah, I know. I'm, I'm hoping <laughs> to see her on the beach one of these days. And I'm just gonna get my buddy to like film us having a throwdown right there. But you know, It's Rhonda Patrick. And I mean, I went on Stephen Gundry's podcast, and I'm friends with him. But I disagree with his repetition of this study as well, or there are many people in the functional medicine space that will repeat the notion that plant fiber is required for a healthy gut mucus layer. And I think, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. And the studies that support that are really not present. There's one study from 2016 in the journal Cell that I believe everyone is quoting. And it's a mouse study and they are notobiotic mice, meaning they're bred without any bacteria in their guts. They're inbred mice, and they're given a 14 species, 14 human-like microbiome. So it's kind of a contrived version of a human-like microbiome. It's not a real human microbiome, and it's not even a human. And then the species that they're given are fiber-loving species. And then the mice are divided into two groups, and one group is fed a high-fiber diet or a carbohydrate-based diet, another group is fed a zero-fiber diet. And what they see is that the colonic mucus layer is a little bit smaller in the zero-fiber diet, but when they look at the histology, that is the actual gut epithelium under a microscope, and they look at immune cells, they find no pathological changes suggestive of inflammation in the zero-fiber group. And so 
the whole thing to me is just like, where have people gone with this? Like, where are people getting the notion that you need to have plant fiber to support the mucus layer in your gut? I just scratch my head and I think I'm waiting for someone to help me understand that because again, clinically, that's not what we see. Right. It's also a very contrived setup because obviously if someone is eating a more of a carnivorous diet, they would have a very different microbiome than someone's eating a very plant-based diet. So that wouldn't even necessarily be useful in field, in clinics. And there are many bacteria which can metabolize fat, protein, and animal-based collagen. And that's the thing I think that most people are missing, that our gut microbiome can shift. And there's a study where they put people on what I would consider to be a very poor version of a carnivorous diet and they compared it to a plant-based diet. And what they see is a divergence in the gut flora within a week. And so the animal-based eaters, again, it's not an ideal diet. The animal-based eaters had more bile acid tolerant organisms and more organisms to ferment fat and protein. And they made isobutyrate and they made acetate and they made propionate as short-chain fatty acids. And the plant-based eaters made butyrate as as a short-chain fatty acid and had different colonic and small intestinal microflora. So the investigators in that study jumped to the conclusion, oh, look, we know what's going on with the gut because they have this organism, you know, Wadsworthia biophilia, or, you know, they don't have this organism. They clearly have an unhealthy gut microbiome. And I think that is an extrapolation. We do not know that. And clinically, nobody is assaying anything clinically in that study. They didn't do inflammatory markers. They didn't follow those people moving forward. It was almost like a setup, right? They were just trying to prove that these bile acid tolerant organisms would show up when they gave people a bunch of foods which promote the formation of bile. Okay, sure. Yeah, of course. But like, how does it track longitudinally and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that the microbiome is where everyone tries to straw man carnivore with regard to the fiber thing. And I would say that it's not a fair critique. Clinically, we just don't see it. Yeah. Why are people getting better? Yeah, well, sorry. I think the fiber, I think you covered really, really nicely. And I think it's also it's interesting to look at the history of why fiber even became popularized. And it was like a, it was a creation with Mr. Kellogg, who had mm-hmm. some religious goal to reduce libido in the population. So it's a very interesting start of that hypothesis generation. Data thus far done in interventional studies hasn't been very compelling. And I think from a microbiome products perspective, I think as we were looking at some of the literature, just very, very early and very, very speculative. I think it's people are very aggressive. They're saying, okay, we know what the optimal microbiome is. We're going to feed you this stuff and you'll get there. And it's like, there's no data there. And we also know that fiber inhibits the absorption of nutrients, you know, and is going to decrease micronutrient availability. So why you would want to eat foods with fiber and not get all the nutrients is beyond me, but that's what people are advocating for. Hey listeners, if you're enjoying this episode thus far, please consider writing a review on our iTunes page. It really does help increase the visibility of our podcast. That's really the best way to support our work. In appreciation for your review, we'll hook you up with $15 of HVMN store credit. We also love it when we see you guys share our episodes that you've enjoyed on your Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And we often reshare those posts. Just tag us at our handle, at HVMN. Now, back to the show. So how about moving more from the safety to more towards optimization and efficacy and all of that? So polyphenols is an interesting question where moving from folks that might have insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, moving now towards professional athletes or people who want to get the most out of the day. And there's reasonable data around polyphenols. 
What do you think of that? Is that more of a hermetic effect? Do you think there's some value? I mean, I think there's been interesting propositions that say that we adopt the carnivore point of view. We can say that meat is food and maybe plants are medicines. Plants might be useful for tweaking and optimizing things here or there. What are your thoughts there? So when we say polyphenols, what we're actually probably saying is phytochemicals, because there are many chemicals which are not technically polyphenolic in structure, like okay. sulforaphane, that get included in this group. So, okay, so basically plant molecules that yes. seem to have some good effect. Right. Plant okay. molecules that we've been told have magical benefits. Yes, yes. yes. Okay. And so if we just back up for one moment and think about the context of this, I believe it's revealing. These are molecules that plants make for their own biochemistry or defense. Most of these molecules are phytoalexins. They are plant defense molecules. They are molecules plants make in response to fungal or herbivorous attack. Resveratrol is a great example. Resveratrol is made in response to a fungus attacking a plant. Hmm. Resveratrol is not made by a plant in order to help humans. None of these chemicals are, and people need to just think about that. Sulforaphane is a, an isothiocyanate that is not a polyphenol, but it is made in response to animals eating plants. Sulforaphane exists in a precursor form called glucoraphanin, which combines with an enzyme myrosinase only when the plant is chewed. Sulforaphane is a molecule that doesn't actually exist in broccoli. If you look at the mechanism, sulforaphane is very clearly a defense molecule. Mm. It's a booby trap. It doesn't even exist until the broccoli is dead and getting chewed. So that's the context. Now, if we really believe these molecules are magically beneficial for humans, that would be an incredible evolutionary accident, right? These are different operating systems. Plants and animals have diverged evolutionarily 500 million years ago, right? Just from devil's advocate perspective, I mean, a lot of drugs come from plants, aspirin and, okay, they seem to be reasonable in terms of what they do for medical purposes. There's a difference between using plants as medicine and using plants as food. And I think what we know, and this is one of my gentle criticisms of naturopathic medicine sometimes is that molecules are molecules. And I think that whether the molecule is from a plant or the molecule is from a pharmaceutical, we know that it can have effects on the human body. I'm not denying the notion that a molecule from a plant could affect the human body. What I'm suggesting is the position that molecules from plants, perhaps very similar to pharmaceuticals, are not all good. And the pharmaceuticals is a very good parallel here. If I told you, hey, I'm going to give you a drug. Say you're my patient. I'm going to give you a drug. Maybe you have, it's a statin, which I would never give you. In fact, if you were my patient, we'd probably never be having a conversation about drugs because you're healthy and I don't like to prescribe drugs. But hypothetically, if a physician is talking to a patient and they're prescribing a drug, whether it's metoprolol, which is a beta blocker or a statin medication or an immunologic drug given for a rheumatologic condition, they should say, this is what the drug does and here are the side effects, okay? This is exactly the same with plant molecules because 
just like pharmaceuticals, these molecules are not native to the human body. This is a really simple idea. If our body doesn't make the molecule or use it as a vitamin or a mineral, it's probably going to have a side effect somewhere in the human body. And this is what has been forgotten time and time again about plant molecules in our, I would argue, overzealous intention to lift these molecules up as magical, right? We forget that just like aspirin, which is, you know, acetylsalicylic acid, right? Just like that molecule, which is actually derived from white willow bark, but made into a pharmaceutical, mm -hmm. there are side effects. The, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are a great example in comparison to curcumin. So when I give someone, or again, I don't give this medication, but when people take ibuprofen or naproxen, which are, you know, Motrin and Aleve, or they take another non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug like diclofenac, they are often told by the physician, this is going to have side effects. It can hurt your kidneys because it affects the formation of prostaglandins, and it can affect the way that the afferent and efferent arterioles in the kidneys work, and it can decrease the mucus layer in the stomach, and if you take too much, you can get a, an ulcer. But it's also going to decrease your pain. So people always know there's a trade-off. When we think of curcumin, and this is again my gentle critique of naturopathic medicine, we forget that curcumin has side effects too because in fact it's just a molecule. Mm -hmm. And it's really the same as the pharmaceutical molecules. And certainly between molecules, what we're trying to do is maximize the benefits and decrease the side effects. What we would continually forget, or what supplement manufacturers and people don't ever tell us, is the side effects of the plant molecules. There's no FDA requirement on the inclusion label of resveratrol or sulforaphane or curcumin to say, hey, here are all the side effects. And there are side effects. And this is, I think, where people are misled. If you look at the literature on curcumin, for instance, curcumin probably has an anti-inflammatory effect. There haven't been a ton of double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trials, but there have been a decent number of trials which show an anti-inflammatory effect of curcumin. Ibuprofen also has an anti-inflammatory effect. Well, ibuprofen has side effects, curcumin has side effects. And that's well-documented in the literature that curcumin can affect DNA replication, that curcumin can be toxic to native human cells, that curcumin can affect potassium channels called the Herg channel, and that curcumin can damage DNA directly. I'm not saying that ibuprofen is better than curcumin or that we shouldn't use curcumin during some applications. I'm just reminding people that all the molecules that are foreign to the human body that are outside of our operating system have side effects. My overarching perspective on curcumin is that we're overusing it and that it's used too often to fight inflammation, which we're not getting to the root cause of, but that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah. But we see the same thing with resveratrol and sulforaphane and any plant molecule. Nobody tells us about the side effects. Resveratrol is actually a molecule that's been a great failure. <laughs> if you look at the trials with resveratrol, it extended lifespan in lower invertebrates like C. elegans, which is a little worm, and perhaps in yeasts. And it had some data in mice, which were compelling, but in humans, it's failed miserably. And yet it's still on many shelves in grocery stores, and it's a multi-million dollar industry. But it's failed in trials of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It's failed in trials of metabolic syndrome. In fact, in metabolic syndrome trials, it actually worsened dysglycemia and mm. worsen glucose control. And what are the side effects of resveratrol? Well, it also happens to be estrogenic. So it's gonna decrease your antigen precursors, right? So that's not a good thing for men or women if we're inhibiting DHEA and androgen precursors and it's gonna lower your testosterone. Right. So forafane is exactly the same thing. 
It's been shown in studies to decrease DNA damage working through the NRF2 pathway because it's a pro-oxidant, and we can talk about hormesis. Because it's a pro-oxidant, it will increase your glutathione. But sulforaphane has side effects, and nobody talks about these. It can compete with iodine at the level of the thyroid and cause you know, thyroid issues for people. Sulforaphane also is known to induce peroxidation of lipid membranes, creating 4-HNE and acrolein. And there's some evidence that sulforaphane can even be inflammatory to the immune system. So this is a big thing. And then people will say, okay, but the plant compounds are better than the pharmaceuticals and the risks are worth the benefits. And I would say that's where I differ. And this is my concept of this is sort of my shtick, right? I say, you don't actually need those. What do we talk about the benefits here? The benefits of sulforaphane are glutathione. Well, it's been very clearly demonstrated repeatedly in studies that we can maintain an adequate level of glutathione and oxidative defense without plant molecules. We don't need molecular hormesis to get enough glutathione. So why would we do something that's redundant and suffer the side effects? If I'm a physician, or a physician isn't gonna give someone a medication they don't need because there's gonna be side effects. But that's what's happening with these plant molecules. People are taking them via supplementation or they're believing that they're getting a benefit from eating plants, when in fact they're redundant effects that I don't think have ever been shown to do anything unique for humans with the side effects that are often ignored. Is that making sense? Yeah, the human metabolism is such a complex network and you're pushing one lever here. It's hard to tell that you're not just finding one localized endpoint that you're controlling. You're pushing a lot of different things. And I think when you're talking about resveratrol, obviously there's well-credentialed people still talking about it, like David Sinclair over at Harvard, still promoting it. But it just reminds me of, you know, some of the arguments around things like metformin or rapamycin, these anti-aging drugs where you might get some longevity increases, but you're also pushing a lot of markers that you might care for health span as well in terms of you know, metformin potentially reducing testosterone. I think it's like a complicated story. And I think you make a very good analogy towards looking at plant molecules almost as a pharmaceutical. There might be one localized endpoint that you want to be optimizing for. And if you have a specific goal to optimize for that, maybe that could be useful for you. But don't forget there are side effects. And I think with the drug industry, at least there's more discussion around side effects where with plant foods, it's just so indoctrinated that plant foods are just generally healthy that we don't even talk about the side effects, which I think is an interesting perspective. You know, people will tout the benefits of metformin. And I think that metformin has benefits in the setting of a standard American diet. If you're an obese rat or you're an obese human who won't change their lifestyle, yeah, metformin is going to be beneficial for you. And the risks probably are outweighed by the benefits. If you are a human that makes intentional choices with their diet, I'm not aware of any benefits to metformin that you cannot achieve through intermittent fasting, ketosis, you know, if we're talking about genetics, if we're talking about HDAC, you know, if we're talking about histone deacetylase inhibition, the benefits of metformin on the AMP kinase system are generally achievable in a ketogenic state. Yeah. And then you don't have the side effects, including lowering testosterone, B12 deficiency, lactic acidosis. So this is really a perfect illustration of the concept I'm trying to communicate to people here. Why would you do something that has a redundant benefit for the risks when you can just live your life well? The conversation changes completely when it's not you and I talking. When it's a patient that comes to anyone in an office and says, hey, doc, I'm never going to change my lifestyle. What's the best medication you got for me? Well, here, here's some metformin. Sure. That's a completely different conversation than most of your audience and most of the people that are interested in a carnivore diet. I don't even know the man or woman on a carnivore diet that's not trying to optimize their life in other ways. If people are making intentional choices, they are aware of this. They're cognizant, right? But 
yes, there are benefits to molecules, molecules derived from plants, molecules derived from pharmaceuticals, molecules derived from bacteria in the setting for medicinal uses. And especially there are benefits to molecules for people that are not able or willing or aware of the importance of changing their lifestyle. But that's a very different conversation, right? Yeah, yeah And I exactly. think that it's, it's very clear to me, and I think you would agree with this, lifestyle is the biggest lever. And in that collection of tools of lifestyle, food is a big, big wrench. And so changing what you eat is going to be so much more powerful than metformin, resveratrol, sulforaphane, any of these molecules. And in people that are trying to optimize, I don't think we need any of these molecules to be optimal. And I think they're actually going to be a decrease because of the side effects. Right. So I think that's where optimal is an interesting definition. And I'm just thinking again, back to performance athletes where, you know, I would say that even athletes that are amenable to the low carb ketogenic lifestyle will have carbs, fast carbs before their Olympic race or their event. And I think that's where I think the, the language on optimal needs to be more clearly defined because like what's optimal for you might be for health span or longevity or for someone who's more of a productivity office worker. Okay, I want to optimize my brain power and my health span. But someone who's trying to optimize to win the gold medal for powerlifting it's like, okay, I'm going to take off my health span maybe, but that's a fair trade-off. And I think perhaps that's more of an engineering concept versus more of a medical concept. Okay, like there are trade-offs for every single decision. These plant molecules or just having carbs right before a race is not necessarily optimal for my metabolism and my metabolic health, but it's going to help me win that race. I think you would agree with that as well. I mean, just curious to get a sense of like how dogmatic are we around defining optimal for everyone Versus can we have a nuanced discussion realizing that some people's optimal is different given your baseline and what your goals are? I totally agree with you. I've talked about sort of the quality of life equation in the past and the idea that every person has a ability to define their highest quality of life at any moment. And who am I to say what that is? And you're right. Most of what I'm talking about now assumes the metric of optimal as health span and lifespan, right? I'm not an Olympic athlete. I think I always wish that I was, but I never got even close. <laughs> I'm a surfer. I hit the punching bag. I do jujitsu casually now. You know, I'm not going to the UFC. I'm never going to be a pro surfer. But yes, absolutely. There are times in people's lives where optimal will sacrifice lifespan, health span, mitochondrial health. And in those situations, yes, molecules, whether they're plant-derived or synthetic, can have a benefit and can get them to optimal. I think that most of the discussion of a carnivore diet is in the context of optimal health and lifespan, but you're absolutely right. There are exceptions and there is nuance yeah. when we're looking at these edges of performance and these are unique and bring up a fantastic point, which I would totally agree with. If someone's going to run a marathon, you're going to benefit from carbohydrates. Right. In any activity that you do that's going to deplete your glycogen that's more than an hour and a half or two hours at a certain percentage of your VO2 max, you're going to need carbohydrates to fuel for right. that. Yeah. Personally, I haven't found that my performance suffers with intervals on a punching bag or jujitsu or surfing for a few hours because those are decreased levels of exertion, right? They're not crazy and they're not crazy long. But, you know, my friend Zach Bitter, who's a world-class ultramarathoner, eats a mostly ketogenic or fat-based diet and then uses carbohydrates in training and during his races. That's super smart. Yeah, That's the way to exactly. do it. I think there are a lot of athletes that do eat keto and low carb, but I think, again, it's like you might be able to pull it off, but you're not necessarily if you're trying to win that gold medal. 
you probably want to have as much substrate in all types of forms and, you know, exogenous ketones, exogenous carbohydrates, everything all at once going. The FASTER study, which is Finney and Volek's study, I'm yep. sure you're familiar with it. It's something I keep coming back to. And if people are not familiar, they tested the sort of metabolic engines of carbohydrate and fat burning athletes, that is ketogenic athletes after the athletes had become keto adapted. And what they found was that the rates of glycogen storage and replenishment were equivalent between the two groups. So this is pretty contrary to popular thinking that in a, even in a ketogenic athlete, you are replenishing glycogen, which yep. is pretty wild, yep. and you are making glycogen. So in the short term, we will deplete our glycogen as we are becoming keto-adapted. But in the long term, it appears that even ketogenic athletes have glycogen. Right. And then the other thing that's an advantage is that in a ketogenic state, we burn more fat, that it was some astronomical number, two to six times more beta oxidation in the ketogenic athletes. So you're burning way more fat. So from an endurance perspective, someone that's keto adapted has a clear example because you have a much bigger tank yeah. of fat. And so that's a really interesting thing. So perhaps I think that in my mind, and this is an interesting idea, you know, it almost seems like the ideal athlete would be someone that's keto adapted and then uses carbohydrates for their event. I think there are some nuanced conversations about would you find benefit from training with carbohydrates? Maybe not. Maybe the idea is to be keto adapted in your training and then use carbohydrates targeted for specific events. But we don't know. I think it's a super open inquiry. I mean, I think in a lot of our conversations, there's a lot of periodization and cycling, both on training and on diet. Right. Right. You would cycle your training protocol and your diet protocol in different ways to optimize and peak for different events. So exactly. Sometimes you want to be training fasted or training keto. Sometimes you want to be training fully fueled. So I've actually heard that cyclists in long races, like stages of Tour de France, can become ketogenic when they deplete all the glycogen. Yeah. At the end of the races, they'll have ketones in the blood. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm not a serious endurance athlete, but I'll generate ketones after a long ride. So absolutely, if we're doing 100, 150 miles a day, that kind of intense exercise, yeah, they're definitely in ketosis towards the end of that race. And from that perspective, you would want to have developed that machinery prior. Exactly. Because exactly. if you don't have that machinery, you're in trouble. Like that's that metabolic flexibility people talk about. Yeah. So one of the things that I think has been most interesting following your work is that I would say that most carnivores articulation of what they consume seems very simple. I mean, people talk about, oh, just eat a bunch of ribeyes and that might be fine. And it seems that some people are doing that well. I think Sean Baker's someone who, you know, goes kind of more of a simple way of just consuming meat. But I found that your articulation around looking at salmon roe, nose to tail, making sure you get all the organ meats as really well-reasoned, well-articulated. I'm curious to introduce that concept to our audience. When you talk about carnivore, this is not just like the kind of the caveman, let's just eat a bunch of steaks. There's a more nuanced way to do this. Can you talk about that? I think that the caveman approach is the right one. I think that the the subtlety there is the cavemen were not just eating a bunch of steaks, right? Fair enough, yeah. The Flintstones didn't just eat steaks. If you think about it, the most plausible explanation is that our ancestors were eating the whole animal. And then based on first principles, when we think about human nutrition, there is this overarching context that human nutrition requirements definitely change in the state of ketosis. All of that aside, if we're looking at all the vitamins and minerals that a human needs to thrive, I don't see any downside to getting a larger variety, a more robust collection, and a larger amount of vitamins and minerals, right? right. And that, I think, is exactly where the nose-to-tail carnivore diet comes in. 
a entirely meat-based diet. I know Sean is a good friend of mine. He eats salmon occasionally and some eggs, but without including organ meats, I do think there are minerals and vitamins that he is falling short on or could get in more robust quantities. So if we're thinking about how to get the maximum amount of micronutrients, I think that that is eating a whole animal. And this is challenging for people and people need to sort of ask themselves, what are my goals with a carnivore diet? Is it a 30 day cleanse? What is my context? Am I super busy? Do I just hate organ meats? Or is this a long-term thing? And so I think there are different levels of a carnivore diet. I think an introductory carnivore diet for 30 or 45 days could be just fine with meat and eggs and some fish and maybe a little bit of liver. You know, a very simple collection of foods. If people just wanted to see how they would feel and maybe see if some of their autoimmune issues or dermatologic issues or inflammatory issues or mood issues would resolve. When people decide to do a carnivore diet long-term or decide to use it more frequently, or if people are just looking for higher nutrient density nutrient content foods, I think inclusion of a nosotail perspective is very valuable. And that's certainly what I do personally. And this is really just the concept that if you and I are out hunting and we kill an animal respectfully, and we're appreciative of this animal and how it's going to fuel us, we're going to eat the whole animal. And then it's so interesting because when you look at the nutrients that a human needs to function and thrive, they're all in the whole animal. And many of them are missing from the simple short-term diet. In the bones, you're going to have calcium. You know, in the bone marrow, you're going to be getting higher amounts of DHA and perhaps unique neurologic factors, neurotrophic factors. And we know that like bone marrow and brain are prized by indigenous people. The, the bones are often ground up and eaten later for you know, I don't think indigenous people know they're eating them for calcium, but that's a good source of calcium, right? right. There's great fat, there's a unique qualities of fat in the bone marrow and the brain. And then you look at the connective tissue. This goes back to our methionine and glycine conversation around the connective tissue is where the glycine is. So they're going to eat all the animal. They're going to eat all the tendons, all the grizzly bits. Maybe you'll boil them so they're softer. You know, this is like tendons. I've had pho, you know, at Asian restaurants and there's tendons and it's quite right. delicious when it's boiled and it's connective tissue. Uh, you'll find these things in other cultures, but Westernized cultures have just stripped them all away. And then of course there are the organs and the organs are where there's a lot of unique micronutrients. Meat is very rich in about half of the B vitamins and some of the minerals. And then if you look at liver specifically, it's an incredible complement to that. You know, meat is high in zinc, liver is high in copper and you need both. Right. And if you overconsume zinc without consuming enough copper, whether by supplementation or perhaps by eating meat without eating any copper containing foods, you can become copper deficient because of the way that zinc and copper are stored in the small intestine, in the metallothionine protein, and they're sloughed off together. So when people are consuming zinc supplements without copper, they can get copper deficient, which is a big deal. That causes neurologic symptoms that mimic B12 deficiency. Yeah. So the same is true with B vitamins. There are some B vitamins in meat, but there's not a lot of folate, not a lot of biotin, not a lot of riboflavin. Where are those? There's some in eggs, but they're mostly found in liver. Liver is a fantastic source of riboflavin. I had a really interesting discussion with Dr. Ben Lynch on my podcast about MTHFR and one of the more compelling things that we know about this MTHFR enzyme, which is methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, most of your listeners will probably be familiar. It's an mm -hmm. enzyme that makes 510-methylene tetrahydrofolate into L-methylfolate. 
is that that enzyme can be polymorphic. And if we don't give our bodies enough riboflavin specifically, then people with polymorphisms in that enzyme can have dysfunction of the enzyme and not make enough L-methylfolate, which leads to rising homocysteine. Now, it's really easily remedied. People will take L-methylfolate, but I think that the better way to fix it is to eat foods that are high in riboflavin because there's good evidence that if you have adequate riboflavin, this being three to five milligrams of riboflavin per day, someone with a, even a 677 C to T polymorphism that's homozygous like myself can have a normally functioning MTHFR just by getting enough riboflavin. Yep. It's the binding site for riboflavin that is affected by that polymorphism, and you just need a little more riboflavin. Well, you're never going to get three to five milligrams of riboflavin eating steak. It's really, really hard. But you're going to easily get it eating liver, and egg yolks help. There's a few other foods that are high in riboflavin. But this is the idea that we just create this really elegant balance of nutrients when we try and eat the organs, the connective tissue, some bone material, and some real animal fat, brain, bone marrow, suet, which is kidney fat, et cetera. Eating the whole animal gives us a more robust collection of nutrients. And like I said, I just can't see how that's a bad thing. Yeah. It just makes sense from a, just like a visceral kindergarten level. It's like, okay, if there's an animal and you want to eat like as much components of it because like i'm more like an animal than like a plant like me turning this grain of wheat into a human seems much more complicated than like turning a cow with like this brain the eyeball the gut the liver the tendons into a human um you mentioned the mtfhr notion and actually i think this is a good segue into more of an audience q a with some of our friends and listeners who actually wrote in so i mentioned my friend brian who got me on to the nose tail carnivore and got me looking at a lot of your stuff and he actually wrote in about your conversation with ben lynch asking about different genetic polymorphisms that people should be concerned about that might not do well on carnivore is that something that you've looked at or do you think almost everyone regardless of different polymorphisms could do well on a carnivore diet one of the podcasts that i'm going to do in the future is an apoe4 podcast i think that these questions are interesting and at this point i've not come across evidence that there are any polymorphisms that i'm aware of my knowledge is still expanding yeah. there are no polymorphisms not apoe3 not apoe4 not fto that make it so that people will not thrive on a carnivore diet. I could be wrong about this. I'm still learning. I think it's a fantastic question and there is some nuance. As I mentioned, I'm gonna be talking to Dom D'Agostino later today for my podcast. And one of the questions I have for him is if he's aware of any polymorphisms that don't really make ketogenic diets so good for humans either. And so that would almost contain the same sort of question. That's overlapping, yeah. Yeah, because you know a, a strict nose to tail carnivore diet would be ketogenic. And so yep. perhaps there are some people that don't do as well on ketogenic diets. And that would sort of be trial and error. There are ways to make a carnivore diet non-ketogenic with honey, or you could do a carnivore-ish type diet, you know, where you're mostly eating animal products and including some squash or some sources of carbohydrates that right. we think probably have less plant toxins. So there are ways to do it. But yeah, it's a great question. It's well considered and it's part of my evolving understanding. There's nothing that I'm aware of now. People will always cite FTO. And I'm just not convinced by the studies around FTO and saturated fat. And I'm not convinced by the literature on APOE4 and saturated fat either. And that's something I have to dive into much more. I'm going to do a podcast with my buddy Tommy Wood in the future. And we're going to go into APOE4, saturated fat, and what it all means and how to do it all. But at this point, I haven't seen it. 
I'm open to the possibility there may be out there and right. there's more to learn there. Perhaps Brian has some suggestions for genes we could look at, but the ones that I've seen people say like, oh, I have FTO, I can't eat saturated fat. I think I'm not buying that one. If you look at the literature, it's not that convincing, Yeah, and then, but it's possible. Right. And the APOE4 is typically associated with Alzheimer's neurological conditions, TBI. And it sounds like the main concern there potentially might be more from an insulin problem than from a saturated fat problem. Again, back to the LDL and that whole story. Brian also wrote in asking, seems to be an avid follower here, that you've recently increased your fat uh, intake up to 70, 75%. So you, you must be in ketosis. Certainly. I did one the other day. It was probably an hour and a half postprandial, and my glucose was 64, and my ketones were 2.3. Solidly in, in nutritional ketosis. Yeah. I did a podcast with Ted Naiman on Better, Stronger, Faster, yeah. and we sort of went back and forth a little bit. Ted is a great guy, super smart. He's a family doc in Seattle where I just left, and we had sort of a roundtable discussion about benefits of higher protein, benefits of higher fat. Right. My perspective is that if you're trying to lose weight on a ketogenic or carnivore diet, you may want to increase protein relative to fat and make the ratio something like, you know, a little more protein than fat in grams. If you're trying to do performance activity or if you're trying to maintain body composition, which is where I'm at, I feel best and I think most of my clients feel best with more fat. And it's not a small amount more fat, it's a significant amount more fat in terms of calories and grams. And I think that there's a sweet spot for protein for humans and that beyond a certain amount, we just don't use it for building muscle anymore. Right, I think that was his question. I think his question is around like in terms of protein content, how much protein on a carnivore diet do you want to maintain some anabolic function? Well, I don't think we should be doing low protein. Right. I think that moderate protein is ideal for humans. And I think that for most people, depending on what they're doing, that's going to be about 0.7 to 1 gram per pound right. of lean body weight per day, which is a lot more than most people would think of. Now, there are a lot of carnivores eating twice that amount. You know, if you eat five ribeyes a day, you're gonna be getting four or 500 grams of protein a day. I think that's more than anyone needs. And my concern is that that actually is damaging and that, that that creates a stress on the urea cycle and requires the liver to turn all of that nitrogen into urea. And we know there are polymorphisms in genes like ornithine transcarbamylase, so OTC, that affect our capacity to turn nitrogen into urea. Right. I happen to have an OTC polymorphism. I'm probably not a great converter of nitrogen into urea. So my upper end for protein is probably a lot lower than other people's. Interesting. You know, you can look at tables and charts and stuff. And what I've noticed is, I think that for me, the ideal, if you're trying to maintain and perform, is get the amount of protein you need to maintain your lean muscle mass, and then don't eat any more protein. Because protein is building blocks. Protein is not really fuel. Mm -hmm. You should be fueling your body with fat beyond that. And that's how you're gonna feel best. Don't make your liver converted into urea. We can do it, but at some point we hit an upper end. There is absolutely the ceiling to what our liver can convert. And I think that some people on a carnivore diet are probably beyond it or right up against it. And I think they'd feel better with more fat. Mental calculation here. Even if you're doing 25, 30% protein and the rest in terms of fat, and you're say you eat 3000 calories a day. I mean, that's still 750 calories of protein, 800 calories from protein, which is upwards of 200 grams of protein, which is going to be more than enough for any terms of any use cases for anabolic function, right? Like the typical uh, minimum RDA is 0.8 grams per body weight kilogram. 
So if you're an 80 kilogram guy, 176 pound guy, that's like around 75, 70 grams of protein a day to just maintain, right? So you're getting more yeah. than double that, even with a 25, 30% macro of protein. So yeah, I'd probably get around 150 a day. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, somebody like Mark Bell has, you know, he's 250 and he probably has 220 pounds of lean muscle mass. And so, you know, he might need a little more protein. And I think that actually that harkens back to Brian's first question and the context of the carnivore diet will be important. What is your ornithine transcarbamylase? You know, how well do you process nitrogen? Like what's your upper end for protein? Like maybe you're hitting that. Yeah. And I think people could be eating less protein than they think and still functioning just fine. Yeah. And I think they feel better on more fat. And I also think that there is a bottom end to that, at which point they're eating not enough protein. And right. that's not a good thing either. Right. Just knowing Brian, I mean, he's a strong, fit guy. So, but it sounds like it's like, it's don't worry about getting too little protein here. I mean, even if you're doing no. 25, 30% protein, that's going to be plenty. And I think plenty. that just, just that back of the envelope math, that's, that's plenty. Pete Jacobs, who was a 2012 Ironman champion, who's recently on our program, and he's now shifting on to carnivore, actually has a question for you. Uh, he asks about low stomach acid from a processed plant-heavy diet, low-protein diet. Older people might have this issue. Have you had stomach acid issues when you're switching people to a carnivore diet? What are your thoughts about that question? Often what I see is a zinc deficiency. And so if people are concerned about low stomach acid, I would recommend a micronutrient panel to make sure that they have adequate micronutrients. If we're zinc deficient, we do not make acid in the parietal cells very well. And that can be a problem. So I think that in the short term, yeah, if people are not digesting the food well, perhaps some HCL is beneficial. I do not recommend long-term betaine HCL in people. And I think that if they're eating meat, they should be zinc adequate and you shouldn't need it. But I think if people are nutritionally deficient, it could be a problem. And that would be a reason to work with a functional medicine doc and make sure you're okay. Right. The best test of this is called a Heidelberg test. And I think that more and more will do pH cap endoscopy for people and actually prove they have low stomach acid. My suspicion is that a lot of people think they have low stomach acid and it's actually something else. Right. And they end up, they end up taking a lot of betaine HCL or a lot of bitters or a lot of other things, pancreatic enzymes that they don't need. And I'm always a fan of parsimony and, you know, avoiding extra supplements and stuff. Do you feel like autoimmune issues have propped up more in recent years because of the change in environment, change in diet? And then two, how do we change the culture around this notion that plant food is healthy and meat is unhealthy? I mean, I think that story has been conflated with a couple reasons. I think there's a moral question there. I think it's an environmental question there. And I think there's like the health question there. And I think the health question you've addressed really, really tightly in this conversation where clearly it's not going to necessarily be bad for you and like might actually be optimal for you. I think the environmental question, I've, I've seen some of your conversations around that. It's not that clear that agriculture is much more efficient than animal husbandry. I think there's like a real academic debate to be had there. But I think the moral question, I think, is probably the strongest argument around mass farming, factory farming, other mammals as food. But I think on the other side of the story, it's like, okay, uh, nature is metal. I mean, like lions eat zebras and Nature isn't this happy zoo where everyone is just like living off of plants necessarily. But I, I don't know what's the best approach in terms of opening people's mind around some of these concepts. So kind of a convoluted two-part question. First part, why are there just more autoimmunities? Or is it, do you think it's more of awareness around like lectins and 
autoimmune issues or is that just has always been a part of human nature? It's people just didn't really realize it. And the second part, can we talk about how you kind of break down the cultural, philosophical, aesthetic, moral questions around animal consumption? It's pretty clear that conditions like autism, celiac disease, autoimmune issues in general are increasing in incidence. It's not just detection, it's increased incidence. And mm. that's pretty clear. There's a very compelling hypothesis around the assertion that this is due to our environment. And there are many things in the environment which could be triggering this. Toxins, pesticides, glyphosate, many things which are creating hyperpermeability to the gut epithelium and foods. And I think that our food habits have changed. Even if you go back 70, 80 years, I don't think people ate vegetables the way they eat vegetables now. Right. And everything looks a little different. And people would definitely ate vegetables. But I think that even four or five generations ago, people really understood that meat and animal products were the reason that we were healthy. And that if we didn't have enough money or we couldn't obtain animal products, we would eat things like potatoes or bread or other things. But generally speaking, I think that our not too distant ancestors really understood that animal products were vital and crucial. And one of the nuances that we haven't really talked about is I do think there is some genetic variation in our individual human ability to tolerate plants. And this kind of goes back to Brian's question, which is well taken. Are there polymorphisms that affect carnivore diets for all people? I'm not sure yet. One of the things that I've mentioned recently in my interviews is that I would hypothesize that a carnivore diet is the basic diet for all humans, or let's say the vast majority of all humans. That based on our evolutionary history and our biochemistry, that I think the vast majority of humans will thrive on a nosotel carnivore diet. And there is individual variation in how many plants we can tolerate on top of that. Like I said, I'm not convinced that plants really represent a beneficial addition to that beyond entertainment and social norms, which is not trivial. Right. But I think there are some people who can tolerate more plants or less plants without becoming sick or manifesting illness more swiftly. Michaela is a great example of that. You know, I seem to be an example of someone that doesn't tolerate plants very well in terms of eczema. And I, I think for myself, I think, I, you know, I've done blocks of six weeks of carnivore and then I eat some salads or eat some noodles at a pho restaurant, for example. And like, I don't really see material change in yeah. terms of any of that. So I think I have a little bit more tolerance towards these carbs or these vegetables. Yeah. Jeff Volek has talked a lot about the carb tolerance and his idea is that perhaps only 30% of the population is carb tolerant. So you bring up a very important point there that right. for a lot of people, a moderate amount of carbohydrates is enough to create insulin resistance. So there's definitely right. some genetic variability at play here. Right. So it, I don't think it's that everyone needs to eat a carnivore diet to thrive or to be optimal. I think that for some people, it can be an incredibly valuable intervention when other things have failed. And I think that for most people, a carnivore diet will create pretty darn amazing health and to which they can add plants if they would like to, depending on how they tolerate them. So having said that, I do think that there is a higher incidence that we're both detecting and seeing more autoimmune disease now because of changes in food, changes in food structure, changes in pesticides, toxins, all these things. And, you know, continuation of our interaction with the environment as humans. Yeah. The moral question, I think that I understand what you're asking. Whenever I hear that, I think a couple of things. The first thing is, like you said, Nature is Metal is one of my favorite Instagram accounts. 
And I think it's true. We have become separated from hunting animals and we don't really understand what it's like to hunt animals. And I think that's a tragedy actually, because my limited experience hunting animals was quite profound and really taught me to respect animals and to be more appreciative of the food I was eating. I will admit that when I eat food that I pull out of the fridge, I don't respect it nearly as much because I forget what that food came from. It looks like a steak. It doesn't look like a cow or a deer. But when I bow hunted a few years ago and I killed a deer with my friend, I thought, oh, every time I ate that meat, I know that deer. I saw that deer. And most people would say, oh, that's super sad. We shouldn't do that. And yes, none of us are trying to kill animals. And this is the way the world works. In order for something to live, something else must die. I think all life is sacred. And I think the killing of animals actually results in a very clear imperative to live our lives well as humans. It's a reminder every day that I don't know how long I'm going to live. You know, maybe I'll live another 50 years. If I'm on Dave Asprey terms, maybe I'll live another 100 years. <laughs> but I'm going to consume a lot of calories in that amount of time. There's just no way around it. I haven't figured out a way to do internal combustion or nuclear fission. So the calories are going to come from somewhere. And as has been described by many people with regard to the environmental arguments, plant-based agriculture results in the loss of life as well. And I would argue that plant-based agriculture results in more loss of life and more detriment to the overall ecosystem of the earth, which I would consider to be one large living, breathing organism yep. than animal agriculture because of the loss of topsoil, monocrop agriculture, depletion of nutrients from the soil, and bykills, animals that are killed in the processing of these foods. Right. So we're in a bugaboo. We cannot avoid impacting the earth by living on it. And I think that respectfully harvesting animals, in my opinion, and the opinions of many others, is the most spiritually compatible way for me to live. And I think that it's in no way, shape, or form disrespectful. And I have never seen any evidence to show that a plant-based diet is more compassionate in any way either. Right. I do not think that factory farming is the way to do it. You yeah, know? exactly. I think that's like, where I, I think that's like the most compelling point from that moral standpoint. Is this essentially the current generation's form of slavery. We're just enslaving and factory farming these poor mammals. And I'm not a fan of that, right. you know? And so then the question, not for me, for an agricultural scientist is how do we do more pasture-raised animals? And perhaps that'll be something that I address. I've seen some discussions of it on social media spheres and people say, we could do all animals grass-fed. And then other people will say, that's impossible. And I think well, whether it is or it isn't, it's a conversation that we should have, and we are where we are. We can't change it. There are 7.8 billion people on the planet or something like that, you know? And yeah. so, I mean, I don't have 7.8 billion kids. Like, I just showed up here, man, you know? Like, I, there's just a lot of people. Like, we just find ourselves in this predicament, and it's like, well, I think that animals are the most nutritious food for humans, even if they are factory farmed. I'm not advocating for that. I don't want animals to suffer in those settings, but I still think animals are the most nutritious food for humans. Right. And I think that if we want humans to be healthier and we want humans to solve problems and we want less of a burden on our economies by a health, we will feed people well. And that will result in greater health in a population, results in greater problems solved, you know, yep. greater solutions. And so that's the way I see it. Like feed the people the best food you can. If the best food that they can get is factory farmed animals, then fine. And then let's figure out a way to not factory farm them anymore. Right. Yeah. Let's bend our dollars towards things that are more sustainably raised or more humanely raised and bend more of the industry to follow yeah. suit. I think that's like the best we can do at this point. Yeah. You can't yeah. tell people, hey, just go for suboptimal health. We're going to pay that cost in the back end when everyone's obese and 
has diabetes. So you got to pay somewhere. Yeah. And I think the question is like, we're humans. We got to optimize for other fellow humans. And let's bend the happiness of all life in the medium long term when we have more and more resources and education to do so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. So last question, and I always like to ask this question. If you had infinite money, infinite resources to run a study, how would you structure it? Obviously, there's a lot of questions to be answered through an interventional, well-run carnivore diet. Curious if that would be where you would be going. What would the arms look like? What would some endpoints be that you would be really excited about or focused on? That would absolutely be the study. I mean, that would be such a game changer. You know, one study to point to, I think there would be a nose to tail carnivore diet arm. There would be a ketogenic arm. There would be a paleo arm, standard American diet arm. You know, give it a vegan diet arm, give it a vegetarian diet arm to really highlight it, you know, make some plant-based stuff in there. And then look at metrics, you know, look at hormones, look at insulin sensitivity, look at inflammatory markers and follow people long enough. And this is why the study would be very difficult to see the arc of chronic disease. And then look at micronutrients, look at micronutrient sufficiency, because I think the plant-based diets will quickly reveal themselves as problematic in that respect. And I think that what we will see in a little bit longer event horizon is that the carnivore or less antigenic diets will result in better outcomes in terms of immunologic measures, inflammatory measures, psychological, mental health measures, psychiatric measures, these kinds of things. But yeah, I think most people in the world want to know how to eat. So let's do a study where we just really follow it carefully over time. And the flaws of the study would be that people have individual genetic variation. But I think that if you could show that an animal-based diet is healthy and I think it'll very clearly show that inflammatory markers are lower, GI issues are lower. People might say, wow, maybe we should put more people on that. Ultimately, it's just about people trying it and seeing how they do. Well said. Not much to add there. So really great conversation. Really fun to chat with you, Paul. Where do people find you? Where do people follow to learn more about your practice and your content? I know you have a Twitter, YouTube. What else do you got? So I've got a podcast. It's called Fundamental Health with Paul Saladino, MD. People can check that out. That's on all the outlets. And I repost it to my YouTube channel. YouTube channel is just under Paul Saladino, MD. My website is carnivoremd.com. And I see patients throughout the world. And then I have Instagram, which is Paul Saladino, MD, and Twitter, MD Saladino. And if people want to get in touch with me directly to become clients, they can find that information on the website. Awesome. Thanks so much, Paul. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. If you want to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit www.hvmn.com pod. Also, by writing a review on our iTunes page and sending a screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com, we'll hook you up with $15 worth of HVMN store credit. Our last shout out goes out to our listener survey, which lets us know who you are better so we can continue making episodes you find most valuable. Visit go.hvmn.com slash podcast survey for that survey. It'll only take a few minutes and new submissions are eligible for an HVMN ketone giveaway. Until next time, eat well, train smart, and live your life.